We are kicking off today um, a series running into Easter and after called The Road to Golgotha and Beyond. And what I want to look at today is Jesus set his face. Will you do the same? And so um, our heart over the next few weeks is really to track the mind-blowing plan of God in the cross of Christ. And I want us to be able to do two things. One, to step back and see this picture that he is painting on a global um, cosmic scale and then dive deep down into the fibers of that fabric, of that canvas, and get into the nitty-gritty of what it's all about um, and what Jesus went through on the ground. And I trust that this is going to be mind-stretching. I trust it's going to be heart-wrenching. And I trust it's going to be soul-refreshing. And I, I really do hope that for each of us that's what it is in some respects it's going to blow our minds to the things of God in others it's going to wrench our hearts to the reality of what Jesus went through and then for others it's going to be a place of immense refreshing when we realize Jesus really is who he said he is and I find that so often as it comes in towards Easter this time of the year I find that the cross can easily lose its wonder Maybe if you've been a Christ follower for many years, maybe it can lose its wonder. And yes, it's something we think on and we know Easter's important intellectually, but does it grip us at a heart level? And maybe uh, Easter can be more about the eggs than anything else. Um, although in this country, they're quite expensive. So it, uh, it helps to be less about the eggs. Um, but, but, but so I pray that this series would really light a fire in your soul. I pray that the series that we go to would light something deep down that transforms your heart. So I want to dive into scripture. Just looking at one passage today, we're going to open it up. And it's in Luke 9. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can head across there. And uh, a little bit of context, uh, Jesus has been talking a little bit to his disciples about the time as sort of coming to a place where uh, his life is going to end. Um, they don't necessarily understand this. He's had the transfiguration, so they kind of know a bit more about who he is. They're like, this guy is the king, but what's it really going to look like? Um, he's commissioned the 12 um, disciples. He's been doing different miraculous signs. And so he's been doing a lot. He's been sharing about what's to come. They've seen him transfigured as uh, the God that he is and uh, he then breaks into this little story and this is what he says when the days drew near for him to be taken up he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him but the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem and when his disciples James and John saw it they said Lord do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them but he turned and he rebuked them uh, um, and they went on to another village. As they were going along uh, the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But that person said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go, um, as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'm going to also follow you, um, follow you, Lord. But let me just go and say farewell to all of those at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. First point. We're going to look, be looking at this first one. Is I want us to be able to trust God for who He is. 
Let's just stop in our tracks and look at two little sentences or phrase parts of the sentence in verse 51. When the days drew near, and then he set his face. When the days drew near, and he set his face. And other translations to set his face. It's really interesting to dive down into it. In fact, the closest, if we were to put into English, the closest to the original is more like he stiffened his face. It's more like with grit, with a frown, but sort of in pain, he, he sort of stiffened his face. Um, that, that's, that's more in line with the Greek. Others would say he determined his journey. So he determined this is what I'm going to do. Others would say he resolutely set out. Those are a little bit on that when we look at the original. So all this means that, um, that when he, the time came near and he set his face, what this leads us to know is that it was active, it was conscious, it was planned, and it was a difficult decision. When Jesus set his face, it involved the plan of God and it involved the pain of God. Both of those together, he was going to experience pain, but it was an absolute plan that he was going to do. Jesus' death on the cross was not some horrific act of man that God didn't know about, that sort of took him by surprise. It was horrific, but it didn't take him by surprise. It wasn't some accident that came about and God had to quickly work around it to make it into something worthwhile. This was planned from the beginning of time. When it says, as the time, as the days drew near for him to be taken up, that shows that Jesus knew the exact moment it was going to happen. He knew it. Without a shadow of doubt, he knew the exact moment in history that he was going to die. And so he said his face. He was like, I know the appointed time that I'm going to be killed in a few days or weeks from now. So I am going to start my journey towards Jerusalem. He was up in the north and he started to head down. Do you know that he knows the exact moment that you're going to die? The exact moment. Exact moment. It will not take him by surprise. It might take us by surprise. It will not take him by surprise. There's a number of verses on this, but Job 14 verse 5 is brilliant. Since this talking about man, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. Isn't it so refreshing to know that the King of Kings is not taken by surprise by your death and mine? He knows it. That's how intimately he knows us. From the hairs on our head to the sparrow that dies to the length of our life, he knows it. It is planned down to the second. And so God made a conscious decision. And oh, this must have been a difficult decision. A difficult decision. Can you imagine the turmoil of knowing something intimately that um, was to lie ahead? Now, there's a few things that you might not like. You might not like the dentist. And maybe if you've had work done on your mouth before and it's been painful, when you book a dentist appointment ahead and you sort of think there's going to be something painful ahead, that, that gives you a slight bit of discomfort, anxiety, because you have an idea of the pain that's coming ahead. I know for some schoolboys um, in the age of initiations, um, we had heard all the stories before about what um, rugby initiation and Toastmasters and those sorts of things would, look, would feel like, and we had seen the bruises. And so mentally, what we had to put through our minds as the day approached for that um, was probably more than the actual event in many respects. But knowing what something is like ahead of time is far worse in a pain-related thing than experiencing it as it happens. Jesus knew ahead of time every lash and what it was going to be like and where it was going to land on his body. 
He knew every thorn that was going to get pushed into his skull. He knew every rod that was going to be hit against his body. He knew every nail and where it was going to go. He knew it. He knew it ahead of time. So let me tell you, when it says he set his face to Jerusalem, yes, he was God, but fully man at the same time. Imagine what he had to process in his mind, mentally, emotionally, of what he was going to go through. Horrifying. Absolutely horrifying. But what did he do? He set his face. And he started on that journey. Did God allow his suffering? Yes. Did he plan it? Yes. Was his goodness displayed in the midst of it? Yes. But how should that make you and I feel? And I've just been processing this. That, that really got to me this week of the fact that he knew every single thing ahead of time that he was going to go through. Well, to you and I, it should make us feel amazingly confident that if God can be in control of the most horrific act that has ever happened, that the world has ever seen, and can bring immense good out of it, life-changing good out of it, it means that he will bring good out of every tragedy and every suffering that you and I face. He will, and he has the power to do it. Let's look at some scripture to back up God's control over not just the cross, but everything. And these scriptures, I want these to be deep scriptures that you sit and you take as God's word. Because they are, and they cover the spectrum of the Bible. And though those scriptures, they call them the spectrum texts. That you just have to sit and go, he is God and I am not. And that's a much better place to be. Listen to some of these. This is relating to the cross. Acts 4 verse 27 to 28. Um, uh, the disciples are praying together when Jesus has died and he's, and he's risen. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So these disciples are praying and they're going, Lord, we know that all that happened, Pontius Pilate and Herod and, um, and the, the soldiers and everything that happened, you planned it all. You knew it was going to happen. It didn't take you by accident. Acts 2 again, verse 23. This Jesus, uh, Peter talking, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You guys did it. You guys killed him. You guys beat him. But God planned it. God overrocked over the process. God knew it was going to happen. He planned salvation for you and I. But evil men got stuck in and did it. But God overrocked the process. Look at this, Daniel 4 verse 35. Um, God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46 verse 10. He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. They should just be hitting you. Doof, doof, doof. Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Proverbs 21, 21, 21 verse 1 The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. You get this picture of this king or pilot of the soldiers making these plans and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But ultimately overarching it, you have the king of kings working everything for his plan. 
James 4, verse 13 to 16. Some of you would know Glenn Miller. He comes to speak here um, uh, a number of times. He's coming out soon. One of the things he says on every email, he says a few, few things. He says, for him. Other ones he says, Craig, I'm coming out in a few weeks' time, and I'll see you, Lord willing. <coughs> Everything that he plans, he's like, I'm planning this, I'm planning this, but only God if I've actually got time. <laughs> that you've given to me for that. Look at this, and uh, it comes out of James 4, 13 to 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, you're a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes, and it's gone. Our lives, they're a mist, they're a vapor. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And I love that about Glenn Miller. He's just like, I've got these plans and I feel there's still time for me on earth. But you know what? Lord willing, I'll see you next week. I might not. I might be in heaven already. But Lord willing, I'm going to see you then. Some of you may feel those verses are tough. Some of you may feel those are amazing. How do I think those verses help us in who God is and in seeing Him? Well, firstly, we can have complete confidence in the cross of Christ being God's active plan to save you and I from our sin. Plan from before the foundation of the world and we can have absolute confidence in what happened on the cross that it was for you and for I for our sin to be paid for. God planned it, he made it happen, he rose again, he's victorious. It wasn't something that Adam and Eve messed up and they sinned in the garden. He was like, oh my goodness, I have to quickly work out history to make this happen. He knew it was going to happen. And for his glory, which we may not completely understand in this lifetime, it will be to the praise of his glorious grace one day and we will see it and we will know it. Second thing, how else can these verses help? During any trial that you and I face, we can trust that as it says in Romans 8 verse 28, in all things, God works for our good. In all things. And Paul was very clear when he said all, because that covers the spectrum of the good and the bad. It covers all of it. And in all of those that God stands overarching in his purpose over, he will bring good out of. Third reason that this helps us. While Satan may be active in bringing destruction, in bringing disease, in bringing death, and bringing suffering, none of it happens without the allowance of a heavenly Father who will get his glory and your good in the process. And guess what? For the Christ follower, look what Paul says in Romans 14 verse 8, who he just said this and then he speaks into this later. He says, for if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Don't you just love it? That's the perspective of the gospel writers. That's what you see through the New Testament. They're like, during the time that I live, awesome, I get to live for Jesus. When I die, I get to be with Jesus. It's a win-win. That's how they look at it. You won't find anything else in New Testament in any of the writers. And death truly has lost its sting if we're Christ followers because we know where we're going. Our problem with concerns about safety, security, suffering is because we haven't yet received a great enough revelation of heaven. That has to impact how we see our lives today because we know the end of the story. If we didn't know the end of the story, yes, you should be terrified of suffering. You should be terrified of disease. All those sorts of things should put huge fear in your heart. But if as Christ follows, we truly know the end of the story, if we truly know that heaven is a place of absolute perfection, free from sin, it takes away 
the sting of those sorts of things in our lives. And lastly, this brings freedom. You might go, how does it bring freedom that God is in absolute control of everything? Well, it's because you don't beat yourself up because you didn't pray hard enough for something. You don't beat yourself up because you somehow missed hearing God's voice. You don't beat yourself up because you went off the rails and you kind of disowned God for a bit and you weren't following right, um, right paths. God knew when you were going to be born. He knows when you're going to die. He knows it. Live for him while you're alive. Live for him. Give him everything while you're alive. That is so releasing and it brings so much freedom that he knows everything about us and he went to the cross anyway. When I look at my life and I look at the thoughts in my head and I look at the, the actions in my heart and the twistedness at times, I'm just like, Lord, how could you die for me? How can you love someone that much? But he does. He does. So you can trust him. Let's move on. You can, you can absolutely trust him. If his plan on the cross was, was there from the beginning of time and it was the most horrific event, you can trust him with everything possible that you could face. Next challenge that I want is for you to see him. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now the Jews and the Samaritans um, didn't like each other. The Jews did not associate with them at all. They were considered sort of dirty. They didn't like each other passing through. The Jews would sort of go around Samaria. And uh, Jesus is like, I'm going to Jerusalem and I want to just head straight past through this place. Um, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure their reason. Is it because of the people he was traveling with and they were Jewish? We're not exactly sure the exact reason reason why they didn't want him to be there but immediately his disciples James and John they dive in and they're like Lord do you want us to tell fire to come down on these people just kill them all <laughs> you did it with Sodom and Gomorrah just destroy them that's the king you've just shown us in the transfiguration you've shown us how powerful you are just wipe these oaks from the planet we don't need them anymore <laughs> but he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village he turned and he's like, no, guys, that's not what I'm about. Let's move on to another village. And so I want us to see him for who he is today. Do you know, we can so often see God as someone that he isn't actually. We can often have a perspective of who God is that maybe we've read about in a book or maybe we've been brought up in or maybe through experience we've done it, but it may not actually be him as according to the Bible, and so easily we can have these pictures of him in our imagination of what he's like. And I'm not saying it has to be a bad picture of him. I'd say most of us, that's a great picture that we have of God. It just may not be the exact picture of who he is. And you see this with the disciples. They had a picture. They'd seen him. They'd seen his love. They'd seen his compassion. They'd seen him healing people. They'd seen the transfiguration. But when it came to people who stood against him, when it came to people who were anti what he was about at that point in time, they misunderstood who he was. And they were like, but we know our God, wipe them out. Do it now. God was like, actually, that's not exactly what I'm like, guys. Actually, I, I, I love these people. I want to see them saved. So he shut them down and they went on to another village. Such a challenge. The disciples saw God as a mighty king who was finally going to show the world who was boss. Finally, we are in the tight posse. We've just been arguing about who's going to be closest to him, who's going to be their God. We're, we're your tight posse, and we understand exactly. I don't even know if that's a real word today, the posse. Teenagers probably laugh at me anyway. Old school. They knew partly who he was, but they didn't grasp the full picture. 
The same can be said for the disciples when he arrived in Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. You know, he arrives, he gets the colt. This is like fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy um, where uh, he comes on a colt and uh, they go moggy. I mean, they are throwing down their clothes. They are putting down the palm branches. They are going crazy because finally they're going to be free from Roman rule. Finally, the Pharisees are not going to have control of them and make them to give all these things to the temple. Finally, the king is going to take his place in Jerusalem. Our king is here and this is what we've been waiting for. And days later, a lot of them were shouting the same thing of crucify him, or a lot of them were keeping quiet when that was happening. But why? Because he wasn't who they thought he was. He was different to what they expected. And these were people who were on the ground who spent time with him. They got it wrong. The king would come, he would smash down anyone in his way with fire and brimstone, he would destroy anyone in his path. He was going to give them the life they were hoping for, the life free from oppression. And Jesus' answer was a rebuke. (laughs) No, guys, I'm not going to do it that way. I've got something else planned. What does it show about Jesus' character? It's very often different to how we see him. So how do you see him? How do you see him today? Maybe he's the one to sort out evil and help you escape evil in this life. I think for a lot of people, a lot of his disciples, that was it. They were like, finally, we're going to have a king who's going to set us free from the oppression that we're facing under Roman rule, a physical freeing. Maybe, Maybe that's you. Maybe that's what God is. Maybe he, in a sense, you wouldn't say it like this, but maybe he is a bit like a slot machine so that subconsciously when you're praying, and I'm probably guilty of this as well, subconsciously when you're praying, it's a bit like... Lord Jesus, um, thank you for this. I just ask you for this and this, but it's kind of in the hope that we sort of just get everything that we want and need. It's kind of like, Lord, I am praying to you and everything else. I do love you and I want to give you my life, but I also just kind of really just want everything that I want. Maybe a God who must answer your prayers so that you can live the life that you want to. And I'm saying this is not necessarily said in a bad sense. You, 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 you do love him and you care for him, but maybe, just maybe, you've seen him a bit more like a God to give you what you want or to give you what you need in life rather than who he really is. You just need to assess it. Jesus was trying to show them that at the foundational core of who he is, he is love. He's in absolute control. He could have wiped out those annoying Samaritans who didn't want him to stay there. <laughs> he could have. But he acted with love and more than anything he wanted them to know that he loved them. And those Samaritans in a week's time or a few weeks time would have either seen or would have heard that that same Jesus who they rejected went and died on the cross. And I trust that they would have heard stories and as churches were planted in their areas they would have heard stories of who he really was. They would have been blown away by the love that they were shown. However we picture Jesus, love has to be a major part. John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for you and I. The disciples and you and I, we need a king of our heart, not a king of a place. They wanted the king of Jerusalem. They wanted a king of their physical, their physical being. But we need a king of our heart. We need that a lot more than we need a physical king.
He is a physical king and we're going to see him one day for all he is. But right now on earth, we need a king in our heart. It's a lot more important. One day there's going to be a real Palm Sunday like no other. Revelation 7, those guys, those disciples, they, they might have got it a bit wrong there. But check this out. Revelation 7, and look, I looked and behold a great multitude which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, that's Jesus, clothed in white robes. What do they have in their hands? Palm branches. This is the real deal, king on his throne. With palm branches and, and lifting up their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. That's the real Palm Sunday. That's what you and I get to look forward to as Christ followers. And those are going to be a wave of palm branches into the distance. Thousands upon thousands of Christ followers. You and I who are Christ followers joining them, celebrating. That's the rule of the King. They may have misunderstood it here and we might misunderstand a little bit of how God's kingdom works here, but there will be no mistaking it then and what a day to look forward to. So first, we can trust him. Second, I want us to see him for who he is. And next, God calls us to follow him as we come to a close. So as they were going along the road, he's obviously with his disciples, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus said to him something very interesting, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then to another, he says, hey, but, but you must follow me. And he said, oh, Lord, I do want to do that, but first let me go bury my father. And he says, a strange phrase, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom. Yet another, he said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first go say wait, so farewell to my friends. That's so important. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So as I said, just prior to this, the disciples have been haggling over who's going to be the greatest. And now Jesus lays out exactly what it means to follow him. And this is repeated over and over through the Gospels, over and over through um, uh, the epistles' letters, the apostles' letters, <laughs> which are the epistles, some of them. He lays it out. And he was about to demonstrate it on his journey to Golgotha. He could have said, this is quite interesting, he could have said, kings have a palace and people have a home, but the Son of Man only has a hut. We could have said, the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. He stepped down to the lowest of the low. He's like foxes, even foxes. The most random and annoying animal in that time would have eaten up everyone's maize and those sorts of things. Those guys have homes and birds who no one even thinks about. Those guys have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's getting across the fact that even the animals had it better and were going to have it better than him on earth and possibly you and I as well. As well as physical lack, he zeroes in on two other issues that people will struggle with when it comes to following him. So first one, he says, you guys are going to struggle with the fact of comfort over following me. You're going to struggle over that. Comfort over following me. And that's the first hurdle for you to get over. Materialism versus following Christ. And that battle is going to be a hard one to fight. Then he takes it a little bit deeper. He says, the next one is your time. Because this person says, hey, 
um, let me go and bury, if we jump back there, he just says to him, oh God, I do want to follow you, but let me go bury my father. Now, it might sound terrible to say, let the dead bury their own dead. You know, in those customs, in those cultures, the burial process would often take a year or more in that culture. It was burials, it was months of mourning, it was then family visits. So what the guy was really saying is, God, I do want to follow you, just give me a year or two. There's some important things I need to do. No doubt, yes, burials and those sorts of family things are important. But in this culture, this was a massive amount of time. And he was saying, God, I I do want to follow you. But there's some other things, particularly quite a large amount of time, and then I'll think about following you. Been having a chat with um, someone who doesn't know Jesus. We've been having great conversations. And he just said, hey, listen, I do want to explore faith, but I just want to get things sorted in my life first. I just want to get um, to this place in wealth and I, I just want to do those sorts of things first. And we were having a great chat and I just said to him, it's actually the other way around. <laughs> get Jesus first and he'll take care of that. But just get this first. Don't let other things, time, sorting out your life, get in the place of Jesus. And then the next one about the farewells. I just need to, I want to follow you, but I, I first want to say farewell to those at home. Let me say farewells. Let me have some parting feasts. Let me prepare for my departure adequately. That's about people. Partly about comfort, but it's about people and our standing. People being happy with us rather than Jesus. Jesus says, am I your priority? And is the good news of myself and the kingdom more important to you than anything else in the world? What's your answer to his call? to you today in terms of your comfort, in terms of your time, and in terms of people. And I don't think we can have following Christ any other way. I think you can read through the Bible, and I think you'll struggle to find anything about the definition of a disciple other than handing over everything to Christ. Doesn't mean you hand it over and he wants to take everything from you. He's a good father, but what I mean is actually going, God, In my heart, you truly are more important than anything else. There's no other means to be a disciple. Can't be summed up any other way. The Holy Spirit has just so challenged me on this over the last few days. I hope he does to you as well because we can often do lip service. We can often say it. Of course I'm a disciple of Christ. Of course I'm a Christ follower. And then we read passages like this and we're like... We'll ignore that passage. We'll ignore, in fact, any of the ones about the cost of following Jesus. But he's clear on that. He's very, very clear on our heart. So I just want you to ask those questions. Am I truly following him? Am I teaching my children what it means to follow him? Or am I possibly teaching a counterfeit gospel? Am I possibly teaching and believing myself a counterfeit gospel that isn't really there? This really hit me this week. When was the last time you asked Jesus what you could do for him when you prayed? When was the last time that the majority of your prayers were about God, I just offer myself to you and just show me, show me how I can give you everything versus I need this. We must ask him for things that we need. We must thank him for things that he's done. But when was the last time? And, and I said, I've been challenged on this because I've just been assessing what I pray over the last week. I've gone, it sounds a lot more like uh, God, like the other side than what can I offer you? Yes, we must be thankful. But if our prayers are smothered with a healthy layer of pouring out our heart to serve him, 
going to be electric in our lives. He'll do something special and deep within our hearts. We need to teach our kids the same. Great quote from uh, John Piper. And then we'll, we'll close off. He says, but if Jesus had not come to judge but to save, if Jesus had come not to judge but to save, then a radically different form of discipleship is in order. Here is a question put to every believer by this text talking about the following him. Does discipleship mean deploying God's missiles against the enemy in righteous indignation? Or does discipleship mean following him on the Calvary road, which leads to suffering and death? The answer of the whole New Testament is this. The surprise about Jesus the Messiah is that he came to live a life of sacrificial dying service before he comes a second time to reign in glory. And the surprise about discipleship is that it demands a life of sacrificial dying service before we can reign with Christ in glory. Luke 9, Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, daily, prayerfully, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life, he will save it. Jesus didn't come to take us out of the tough life. He came to show us how to follow after him. His death on the cross doesn't take us away from hardship. In fact, we're often to demonstrate Christ to others through hardship. Any passages that you find in the Bible about comfort, peace, and rest, they're about those things coming from his presence, not from our surroundings. Any passages you see about treasure, wealth, and prosperity, they point to eternity and not to earth. But we like to get peace from our surroundings and treasure from earth. Those are both doomed to fail. It's just so easy for us to talk about the goodness of God and subtly to teach ourselves that God's really about making sure that we're prosperous in an earthly sense and protected from all issues of struggle. It's easy for us to go to that distance of saying, because he's good, it means that these sorts of things um, shouldn't happen. But that isn't the biblical narrative. You don't see that through the New Testament. You don't see the disciples and the followers of Christ worried about making sure they lived in comfort and making sure that they were protected. It wasn't even on their radar. And if you can find a passage in the New Testament about them being worried about comfort and worried about earthly things, please do tell me. (laughs) But I feel that I'm pretty confident that as I've read through it, it's not replicated in their lives. The goodness of God is defeat of sin. It's eternal life. It's advance of his kingdom on earth. It's so much more than the easy life. Don't water it down to a safe, secure, comfortable, wasted life. That's the counterfeit gospel. That's the counterfeit gospel. It's not what the New Testament displays. The New Testament displays a people, you and I, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with our eyes and our hearts fixed on Christ and his magnificent purpose on earth. It's a picture of a people, regardless of surroundings, living in peace, living in purpose, living in hope, living in joy. And you know what? So often, he's so good, he just gives us the other stuff on top. My heart over the series is that you'd not only see Christ in this magnificent, majestic, cosmic journey that he set his face on, but that you and I would go on our own personal journeys to Golgotha. That just as we say in the series, it's about the journey to Golgotha and beyond, that you and I would take that journey ourselves. How can you set yourself towards the cross today? How can you set your face towards dying to self today? What is it that you need to crucify in your life? What is it that you need to put to death in your life today? And that's when we experience true life now and beyond.
Do you want to stand together? I'm going to pray. Just I want you to fix your eyes on him. I want you to set your face on him. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see you for who you are. I pray that as we've read in these passages, just as you set your face, the time was drawing near, just as you planned this for your glory and for our good from the beginning of time. I pray that we would see you for who you are, a loving God who would stop at nothing to see us saved. A loving God who would go to the ends of the earth and to the most horrific of deaths to see us changed forever. I pray that we would see you for the, the God that you are, that we wouldn't see a twisted version, we wouldn't see a counterfeit, but we would see you as a God driven by love. That we wouldn't um, have expectations of you that you don't lay out for us. That we wouldn't expect things that we, we, we maybe kind of think you should give us, but actually when we read the Bible, they're things that you never promised. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that we would follow you, truly follow you, that you would light a fire today in the depths of our hearts, Holy Spirit. You'd light a fire that doesn't worry about comfort and doesn't worry about safety and doesn't worry about security. But as we read through the pages of the Bible, we would be those disciples who cared about nothing except living for you and for your eternal kingdom. And Lord, what a day awaits. What a day awaits on the true Palm Sunday. On the Palm Sunday where there is no more sickness, no more suffering, no more pain. And forever we live and reign with you in glory. What a day, God. I ask that we would live that each day. I ask we would fix our eyes on that each and every day. That we would live for the kingdom that will last forever and ever and ever. The kingdom that you've called us to. And that as we live for that, we would be fueled by love for today. That people would see it in our lives. They would see it in our hearts. They would see it in our conversation. Pray that as we close and as we sing together today, you would touch us, Holy Spirit, to the depths of our being.